From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson. Welcome, Anita and Catherine. Pleasure to be here. Good to be here. Well, here are the issues. President Biden emphasized that the West had nothing to do with the power struggle between Russian President Vladimir Putin and the mercenary Wagner Group that resulted in an aborted mutiny last weekend. Biden delivered his message before cameras, saying the U.S. had nothing to do with Russia's troubles and that the issue was an internal power struggle within the Russian system. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the Western military alliance is ready to defend itself against any threat posed by the move of Russia's Wagner mercenary force to Belarus. Amid fears, the relocation of the private army could create instability for NATO's Eastern European members. Here in the U.S., President Biden launched a huge economic campaign termed Bidenomics as the 2024 election cycle heats up. White House aides described the term as a broad collection of policies aimed at using government muscle to revive and reshape the economy to help the middle class. In an audio recording obtained by news organizations, it reveals former President Donald Trump discussing secret documents about a plan to attack Iran as he spoke to a writer after leaving office in 2021. Federal prosecutors cited parts of the conversation in an indictment last month on charges that he illegally retained classified government documents and then conspired to obstruct a federal investigation. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected a controversial legal theory that could have changed the way elections are run across the country, and the ruling left the door open to more limited challenges that could increase its role in deciding voting disputes during the 2024 presidential election. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Anita, President Biden said the U.S. made it clear they were not involved with Russia's Wagner Group initiating and ending their rebellion against Russia's government. So has the White House come to any conclusions yet regarding implications for Russia and Ukraine? No. And in fact, the phrase of the week is it's too soon to tell. It's too soon to tell what this could mean for power structures in Russia and Belarus and Ukraine. And it's also too soon to tell how the West is going to respond to this evolving, frankly, dangerous weird situation. You've described it as a mutiny, as a rebellion. Putin has called it a rebellion. I think the upshot is this was wild what happened this weekend with the head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, holding a, quote, march for justice, taking tanks within 200 clicks of Moscow and then stopping and accepting what looks like exile in Belarus, which theoretically puts him within 100 clicks of Kyiv whereas he wasn't that close to Kiev before. So this is a really strange situation, and the White House is not drawing conclusions at this time. But of course, they are looking at scenarios. And when we asked National Security Spokesman John Kirby a few days ago what scenarios they were looking at, we said, can you run us through the scenarios? He gave a very simple answer, no. Well, Western leaders are saying that this reveals the weakness of the country's president, Vladimir Putin. So how has this uprising, I guess we can call it that, an uprising rebellion or mutiny, affected Putin on the world stage? 
Clearly, this has given an opportunity to Western leaders and anybody who doesn't like Putin to trash talk him at will. And everybody from Antony Blinken to head defense chiefs in the United States to NATO allies have done just that. But this is no laughing matter, of course. This could be serious because instability in a country as big and as nuclear armed as Russia is no joke. So On the one hand, we do have officials like Secretary of State Antony Blinken capitalizing on this, what can only be seen as an embarrassment for Vladimir Putin, but also being very careful about what could happen next in this very volatile situation. Yeah, that's right. I just want to pivot off something Anita said. You know, the White House was being very careful over the weekend of the uprising, the coup, whatever you want to call it. So was congressional leadership. There was dead silence from all of the usual suspects on the foreign affairs committees and congressional leadership. They were also very aware that the U.S. could not be seen as interfering in what Putin would term a internal Russian matter. But I think as we've seen the situation settle down, you're absolutely going to hear from leaders in Congress asking what this means in broader terms for Vladimir Putin. And we worry about what Putin means when he's in the Russian leadership, but what are the alternatives? What happens if he falls? Who are the alternatives for being in control of the war in Ukraine, being in control of the Russian nuclear arsenal, you know, there are really no good options in terms of what we want to see in Russia. So this really just displayed a sense of how internally unsettled Russia is because of the way this war in Ukraine has been running. And you know, it probably will beg some questions about what our ultimate goals are in terms of helping Ukraine, what we want to see if Ukraine doesn't need win this war, what that will mean in Russia, how that impact will ripple out. So a lot of big questions that we probably don't really know the answers for. And I think a lot of people on Capitol Hill were asking themselves those questions as they watched this situation play out this past weekend. Yeah, I think the only thing that was definitively answered this past weekend, and this probably came at some emotional pain for Putin, was he found out who his real friends are. It's a very short list. And also, Anita, you had mentioned earlier NATO's regards with this. Since the Wagner Group is in Belarus and NATO's chief Stoltenberg is saying also it's just too early to say what their presence could mean for NATO allies. But the neighbors of Belarus are very, very concerned. For instance, Polish President Andrzej Duda said he hoped the threat posed by Wagner mercenaries to NATO would be on the agenda at the upcoming summit of 31 members in Lithuania, and this is next month. Are NATO members, are they too taking a wait-and-see attitude? I think it depends who you're talking about. I mean, there are 31 NATO members. Maybe there will be 32 by the time the summit concludes. And these are, you know, very distinct countries. They go from Turkey to Finland. It runs the gamut. And I think what we are going to see from Baltic states, and that would be like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, so on and so forth, are concerns about how close Wagner troops now are to them. And they're going to probably be asking for help to strengthen NATO's eastern flank. Whether or not this is going to come to pass is going to depend on a lot of things. And we still have a few weeks before this summit happens, and a lot can happen in that time. 
Ukraine's President Zelensky says he understands that his country can't join NATO while it's fighting a war, but he wants a signal that after the war, Ukraine will be a member. So, Anita, you did mention that there was a number 32 that could possibly come out after the summit. What country would that be? I was actually talking about Sweden because new NATO members require unanimous consent to join. It's being stopped right now by Turkey and also by Hungary. Interesting. So, of course, Russia's war in Ukraine will be dominating the topic at the upcoming summit. What else can we expect looking ahead? Sure. Well, there's a big question about who's going to leave NATO going forward, because uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has said, I'm out. He's already extended his mandate a few times. It's not clear how that's going to play out. And some predictors are saying that Stoltenberg might stay on. So that's going to be an issue at the summit for sure. I would just note that Ukraine is still fighting this war. And one thing that National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby brought up is that there's very much a war still going on, and we should not interpret this withdrawal or this taking of Wagner troops off the battleground as a sign that the tide might turn. There are still tens of thousands of regular Russian troops on the ground in Ukraine wreaking havoc and doing what they're doing. So this is all happening in the middle of a very, very active conflict, and the Ukrainians are mounting a counteroffensive as we speak, and it's not moving as quickly as they would like. It's, of course, complicated by the events of the past weekend. So there's a lot going on right now. That's a great point to bring up, Anita, because we're going to be having this discussion on Capitol Hill later this summer about a new round of U.S. aid to Ukraine. There are some conservative voices in the U.S. Congress that have expressed concern that we've given too much or that it's not properly overseen. And it'll be important for supporters of USAID to Ukraine to really emphasize that just because the Wagner Group isn't in the mix anymore, there are tens of thousands of Russian troops who are fighting that war in Ukraine, and that conflict is still very much going on. So something from the past weekend that'll certainly be brought up in that larger discussion. Okay, great. Thanks. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, we'll look at a couple of topics dominating U.S. politics. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson. Well, President Biden's top economic advisors believe the worst effects of the recession are over and they are increasingly confident the economy is heading for a soft landing, averting a recession. And a growing number of economists are beginning to agree. And President Biden has taken his new policy, Bidenomics, on the road. So why is the White House embracing this term, especially when most Americans are still feeling the effects of inflation? Well, as President Biden said, he didn't coin the term. It was coined by a newspaper editorial. And then he tried it on and he was like, why not? It fits. It is catchy. And it is interesting because it has the same cadence as another popular term, Reaganomics, which is intended to be or rather was the opposite of what Biden's trying to do. 
So this is a useful kind of rhetorical tool for the administration to say, we're doing the opposite of Reaganomics, which is top down, protect the wealthy, trickle down economics. We're doing bottom up, middle out sort of economic policies, you know, very progressive kind of FDR era stuff, like increased government spending on things like infrastructure, support for the middle class. There are three tenets to Bidenomics, and they are all about, you know, making public investments, empowering and educating American workers and promoting competition. This is a very progressive agenda. So they're owning Bidenomics. But I think what's important to remember is that actual economic policy and perceptions of how the economy is doing and how it's being handled by the chief executive are like night and day. Only about a third of Americans approve of Biden's handling of the economy. The other two thirds of them are like, nope, this is not working for us. They're seeing higher prices at the gas pump and at the grocery store, which, of course, nobody likes to see. So there's always going to be a gap and there's also going to be a lag always between implementation of government policies, that's called the implementation lag, and then realizing what has happened, because it usually takes about two financial quarters to realize what has happened to something as large and complex as the economy. That's called the recognition lag. So there's just a lot of stuff we don't know about how these policies could play out. And I think that uncertainty, I think a lot of people around the world are just exhausted. The last three years have been a lot. In terms of speaking of that uncertainty, certainly congressional Republicans also want to make Bidenomics a rhetorical device on their own ends, because, of course, we're going into the 2024 presidential and congressional elections. And this is going to be a top issue for many, if not most, American voters. People, as Anita noted, are tired of the high grocery prices, the high gas prices, the cost of living. This is something that's going to be top on their minds when they're evaluating candidates and when they're looking at whether they want to reelect Biden to the White House. Congressional Republicans think that branding this Bidenomics is a very useful tool for them. I've been getting bombarded with commentary from congressional Republicans this week in response to that Biden speech saying, look, he owns these policies and they are not working for most average Americans. But as Anita noted, look, it takes a long time for the impact of economic policies to filter through for us to really understand how they're impacting the economy. And of course, the president isn't in charge of everything in terms of the whole vast American economy. There are some things that are simply out of his control. But as we know in politics, perception is everything. So it'll be really interesting to see how congressional Republicans are able to make this argument as we get deeper and deeper into the campaign season. And if they're able to argue that President Biden really has not addressed the issues of the last three years, the COVID-19 pandemic and its economic consequences. Yeah, those are some really good points. And he's out campaigning this and he started in Chicago. I guess we're going to have to see how his campaigning will help with the disconnect between his Bidenomics and Americans' perceptions of the economy. Yeah, he has 18 months, 18, we could say long because I look ahead to this November election and I'm like, oh, Lord, 18 months of this. But that's not a long time (laughs) to to sell the idea that your economic policies are working, because, as I said, there are going to be lags in both the recognition and the data gathering 
So we're not going to have a clear picture of how Bidenomics has worked for some time. It could be years, but he has 18 months. Yes. Well, on now to our next topic. One of the biggest pieces of evidence the Justice Department has against Donald Trump is a 2021 recording of the former president showing off an attack plan against Iran, admitting the plan is still classified because he didn't declassify it while he was in office. However, the former president thinks the audio will clear him of any wrongdoing, and he wrote And I'm quoting him, the deranged special prosecutor Jack Smith, working in conjunction with the DOJ and FBI, illegally leaked and spun a tape and transcript of me, which is actually an exoneration rather than what they would have you believe, unquote. And this is what he wrote on the Truth Social website. So is this recording more damaging to Trump than him retaining the other classified documents? I just want to repeat a memorable quote from former FBI director James Comey. Lordy, there are tapes. I'm sorry, but when you're accused of federal crimes and then a tape surfaces of you talking about your actions in reference to these alleged federal crimes, that's never a good look. I think even the world's worst lawyer, the graduated bottom of their class at the world's worst law school will say, yeah, that's not going to be good for you. It's fascinating how Trump is spinning this. But just from the White House side, let me just be clear, the White House isn't touching this with a 10-foot pole. You know, most of Trump's supporters really are that hardcore group that believes the former president is being unfairly victimized and really will not shift in their viewpoints when they hear this evidence come out. What is interesting to track is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week was on Fox News, a more conservative news organization, and was asked about whether former President Trump would be the best choice to become the Republican nominee in 2024. And McCarthy said something very interesting. He he said, no, he said he possibly might not be. And that had some really interesting consequences because McCarthy owes his speakership to the support of Trump. We remember earlier this year when McCarthy had to go through 15 rounds of voting to become the Speaker of the House in the U.S. House of Representatives. Trump was calling members of Congress, encouraging them to vote for McCarthy, throwing his weight behind McCarthy to get that dream job of his that he's wanted for so long. And so it was really striking to see McCarthy say that out loud. Trump, of course, was furious and, you know, there had to be some patch up work done between the two camps, Trump and McCarthy. There was some stats about fundraising and whether McCarthy could fundraise off of Trump now. So an interesting little crack emerging after this recording came out. We've seen congressional Republicans support Trump in numerous intense situations, most memorably after the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. So it's really interesting to see how these indictments are impacting the way congressional Republicans talk about him now. And that's something that I'm going to be tracking in the coming months as he goes to trial, as we get more evidence in this. Very interesting. And yes, and considering he is still in the running for president with 11 other Republican contenders. So it's all going to be interesting to see how all of this pans out over the next few months. 
And in our last topic, the U.S. Supreme Court shot down a controversial legal theory that could have changed the way elections are run across the country, but it also left the door open to more limited challenges that could increase its role in deciding voting disputes during the 2024 presidential election. So what can we see with this Supreme Court ruling and its effect on the upcoming presidential election? Yeah, the plot thickens here. Let me just go back and outline that this was a 6-3 majority vote to dismiss this theory that would have given state lawmakers pretty much unchecked power over federal elections, which is maybe akin to letting elementary schoolers choose the lunch menu. I mean, you know, (laughs) you shouldn't let people who have a vested interest and questionable decision skills be in charge of things like this, I suppose. So that's where we are right now. You know, people who supported this ruling, although noted that it should have been 9-0, not 6-3, said that this basically saves American elections for the next 100 years or so by keeping state legislators out of it. But I think there are going to be more challenges coming up before the court. But the court is a slow moving organ. So I think for now, the sense among supporters of this ruling is that for now, they've staved off the worst of it. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. So, Catherine, what is weighing on your mind this week? Well, what is weighing on my mind is that while Congress is on their two-week break for the independence holiday here in this country, that means that I don't have any stories to cover on Capitol Hill, which means I sometimes shift over to help on the other D.C. beats. And this week I am on the Supreme Court beat, which is kind of an interesting contrast. You know, I wanted to share with international audiences that when you're up on Capitol Hill, you really have unfettered access to all of the lawmakers. You can run down hallways, you can stick a microphone in their face, ask them the questions they don't want to be asked. Now they can choose whether or not to answer them, but you do have that access. And now over on the Supreme Court, which is really one of the most closed-in organizations in the U.S. government. Cameras aren't allowed in there. There have been significant concerns about ethics of some of the Supreme Court justices in recent weeks. And really, this is a very different way that this organization functions. You know, for example, in this week, we don't even know what decisions they will hand down on what day. We have to wait until the moment those decisions come out. So it's really striking to just cover two very different bodies of government within D.C. and see how vastly different they are in terms of sharing their inner workings with the American public. It's always interesting to see that contrast. Very good. Thank you. And Anita. So I'm going to shift from my usual misanthropy and lack of faith in humanity this week. What's weighing on my mind is the shot put. This is a four kilogram ball that elite athletes can throw about 22 meters. That's really far. The reason this is way on my mind is at the recent European Athletic Championships, Belgium's team had two injured athletes. They needed somebody to run the hurdles. They said, who could do it? Shot putter raised her hand. And she said, I'm going to run the hurdles so we don't get disqualified. Now, let me just back up. Shot put and hurdling are two very different sports that require two very different skill sets, really. So I want you to imagine this woman lining up with six other women who basically look like gazelles who are about to 
fly over these hurdles, and she definitely does not have that phenotype or those skills. She finished in 32.81 seconds, dead last, but the stadium was watching only her. That's because she stepped up and did something. And I think about this because I think about how in politics, we're always kind of in it for our own self-interests and it's a dog-eat-dog world. And in this case, we saw a person, this is shot putter Jolien Bonkua, Cameroonian Belgian national, who stepped up for her team and did something cool and without any real gain to her. She could have fallen over. She did come in dead last and she still did it. And that gives me hope. Very good. And thank you both for your thoughts. And we will end the show on those notes. My thanks go to VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson. I'm Kim Lewis. And be sure to join us next weekend for more Issues in the News. 